0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. Environmental groups like the World Wildlife Fund and the Australian Conservation Foundation are some of the biggest recipients of donations from Australians who want to make a difference for the environment. But increasingly, the biggest groups are turning towards working with the government and with corporate Australia instead of resisting them. So, what does that shift mean? Will it help or hinder us in stopping climate change? And what does it mean for the future of environmentalism? Today, writer and contributor to the Saturday paper, Ben Abitangelo, on why the environmental movement is divided at a time when we need it the most. It's Thursday, July 27. Ben, you've recently been reporting on the biggest conservation groups in Australia. Why did you want to look into them?
1: Well, the origin of looking into this, I think, was, you know, a couple of years ago when I started to see swaths of business leaders and people from, you know, the industries that have been creating these problems swarm, you know, to the environmental movement to position themselves as a solution and Over the last few weeks, I've been looking into a range of different stories, but a consistent theme has been from those within environmentalism and conservation is the conflict that they feel of the movement and how they believe that larger uh, environmental organisations are now complicit in, you know, some of this planetary destruction. So, the more conversations I was having, the more I was reading, uh, you know, the more communities that I've been going to and spending time with on the ground who are bearing the consequences of this collusion, of these cosy relationships, it just became really obvious that there's been a significant shift. I spoke with... Richard Dennis, who was kind enough to go on record with me and, I mean, another thing that was really interesting from his part was that we've got environmental groups and movements that are ignoring the science, which sounds, you know, is like a doctor ignoring the medicine (laughs) or an economist ignoring the numbers. What does he mean by that? Well, I mean, the the instances that he pointed to was the band of green fronting organisations that signed up for the Safeguard Mechanism Scheme, which was designed to support ongoing pollution. And his institute had published a lot of research leading up to that debate that said, hang on, not only is this bill just another version of the coalition's policy from previous years, but beyond that, it's already being implemented. And the science suggests and the way that it is worded that, you know, this isn't going to prevent emissions. And as we've seen since then, we had a lot of green fronting organisations put their name to that bill. And What it's been used for post that is to green light more extractivism, including the fracking of the Betaloo Basin, which is going to be one of the biggest carbon bombs that this country has seen in in many years.
0: And so this shift in how some of the big environmentalist groups are operating, how how did that change happen, Ben, and where did it begin?
1: Yeah, the origins of this change, I think, are decades ago, and we have seen, particularly of late, a, a significant shift from you know, environmentalists moving from the streets into the boardrooms or into the halls of parliament and taking a different approach, which, you know, one is collaborative, one is diplomatic, one is taking these big corporations and these governments, you know, at their word and and believing that they're acting in good faith. And what we're seeing because of that is just year-on-year growth with emissions, you know, more really dirty projects being granted and approved for development. So that's why I wanted to speak with Christine Milne, who's a former leader of the Greens and a former senator for Tasmania, um, you know, who is a committed, you know, activist and environmentalist that isn't afraid to speak out.
2: The larger of the old environment groups have taken the bait and have assumed that the way to bring about change is to uh, to go and ingratiate yourself with the political parties and lobby ingratiate yourself with the companies and lobby, and somehow that will deliver what you want. Now, it does not stand...
1: I think when you have that revolving door, you start to see vested interest, particularly when there's a lot of money that is sloshing around. So some of these legacy conservation groups that should be conserving and protecting nature are actually putting their name and their logo to some of these different bills that are really designed to keep extractivism going.
2: The minister's very happy to take your calls. You sit down, have cups of tea with the minister, report back to the minister Mm. on the meetings you've had with other people in parliament and so on, and everyone's all good friends. You help that party get elected. And then when they get elected, they say, well, this is as far as we can go.
1: Mm. So... When you look at you know that revolving door, you're starting to see you know the same faces, the same names on these boards, that have you know previous lobbyists for governments that have worked in different industries, you know filling these positions of influence and power. And I guess what unfortunately we're seeing is that I think they're taking on these positions because they stand to gain monetarily from it.
2: And so instead of saying, well, sorry then, there'll be a big rally outside your office next weekend. They go back to the Greens or to others who are standing up and saying, sorry, you're going to have to back down because we're told by the government they're not going to be prepared to go any further.
1: And Christine is saying if that's going to be the case, then we're just going to continue to see emissions rise year on year and, um, you know, more extractivism take place and instead of us pushing back towards restoring balance, we're unfortunately going to keep walking ourselves to the edge.
2: And because you have abandoned the power of the streets, you don't have anything equivalent to the power of a donation. So my view is, you know, ingratiate yourself with the political party and then beg for mercy.
0: I guess what Christine Milne is getting at is that the old strategy or the old style of protesting, this power of the streets, this sort of grassroots movement, is very different to what we're seeing today. But I wonder if you can talk to what that old style and strategy of protesting was like and if it was actually effective anyway.
1: The power of environmentalists and concerned citizens is that of the streets, right? They Historically, there's been plenty of examples, whether it's the Jabaluka mine um, in Kakadu and the Mirah people that successfully opposed that um, in the early 2000s. We want Jabaluka lease properly recognised and returned to Kakadu National Park under the control and management of the mirror of people for a better future for all of us. Thank you. We've seen mass movements to stop extractivism at James Price Point. Back. Police reinforcements, including the riot squad, sent from Perth to remove about 100 men, women morning, and gentlemen. children from blocking access to James Price Point. What's been the catalyst for that is sustained movement and political pressure coming from people banging the pavements on the streets.
2: And so people went from this idea that, well, you're on the streets, you bring pressure to bear. No. You actually go inside the process and you exert change from inside and that's bob hawk took the people off the streets and they have never effectively gone back on the streets since
1: you know for diplomacy to work behind closed doors or for diplomacy to work whilst having a seat at the table that needs to have sustained aggressive movement out on the streets and You know, Christine's point was that that is the power of environmentalists, that is the power of the movement historically. And if you're going to cede that territory and take up the fight in the halls of parliament to take up the fight in the boardrooms of big corporations, then you're not going to see anything change.
2: It is an absolute failed strategy. And if it has been such a successful strategy, where are the results? Where have I seen an end to any of these projects as a result of that strategy? There are none, as far as I can see. And if you go back and look at the ones that we've won, like Jabaluka, like James Price Point, the ones we have won are where you have built enough Momentum and political profile to start bringing pressure to bear on the government of the day. Mm.
1: Unfortunately, you know, when I speak to people like Christine and others from within the movement, is that, you know, they have seen that the tactics change dramatically and, you know, we now see this relationship that is cosy and collaborative and, you know, the combative nature of yesteryear that was really successful in stopping some really significant developments uh, is no longer there.
0: We'll be back after
1: this. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes.
0: As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read post. A free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au newsletters. Ben, you've been talking about how these environmental groups have become less combative As you say, they're more focused on collaboration. Can you give me some examples about how these partnerships are playing out practically? What are we seeing them do?
1: Yeah, well, we've seen the WWF and um, the Australian Conservation Foundation, you know, working with the Business Council of Australia, which is what would be an insane collaboration 10 or 20 years ago, essentially to say, look, let's turn Australia into a renewable energy export superpower. And much of that is about, you know, mining lithium, mining iron ore, mining copper, manganese, you know, all of these critical rare earth minerals that are required for electrification. So decades ago, you would never see those groups working in partnership with, you know, the business council and, you know, lobbying governments to say, no, we can become a superpower, we can mine all of these minerals. And what we're seeing because of that is a lot of these projects go ahead that actually have really destructive impacts on the environment. And the compromises of turning Australia into a renewable energy superpower and digging up every single critical rare earth mineral is that those minerals are found on indigenous people's lands, you know, underneath their feet. So the racist compromises of renewable energy are actually being invoiced to those communities who have an outsized role to play if balance is to be restored. But instead of that, they are being slated as, again, necessary collateral damage to solve, you know, a problem that isn't one of their creation.
0: Mm, And I suppose this is all happening, you know, at an interesting time, because we had the climate election last year, we saw this huge surge in support for the Teals and Greens candidates. And Labor did pass that significant climate change legislation this year, which means we will cut our emissions by 43% by 2030. How do environmental activists that you're talking to
1: view those achievements? Um, with scepticism, I mean the the forty three percent is just a target; it's not enforceable. And current predictions are saying that we're going to blow that out of the water, particularly with a lot of these really dirty mines coming into play. Whether that be the Santos Barossa project, the fracking of the Beetaloo Basin, we're talking about Middle Arm in the Northern Territory, and a swath of other gas and coal mines being green lit. You know, Richard Dennis was clear that there's more than one hundred and ten gas and coal projects that are slated for development. So there's a lot of scepticism with targets, right? They're not enforceable. They're kind of just like these guidelines or, as some environmentalists say, just another kicking of the can down the road. So, you know, we did have what they dubbed the climate election, but what we've seen from Labor is very much just more of the same and, you know, a really insane commitment to the status quo, considering that, you know, as each day goes by and more pollution gets, you know, thrusted out into the atmosphere that we trek closer and closer towards a point of no return. And what makes this story interesting, I think, is is that we get closer to the point of no return. You'd think there'd be a more combative approach from environmentalists rather than one that is cosy and collaborative.
0: Mm, and there's clearly tension within the movement about this approach. Is there a push within the movement to undo this evolution that you're talking about? Could we actually see a splintering of the conservation movement itself if there's disagreement in the ranks about how they're going about their action?
1: I think so. Uh, I think we'll inevitably see that. I think we'll see some renewal within the movement. But. I think what's really challenging now is because of the money that's sloshing around and the financial returns that are at play, is that the ministers now have a huge amount of organisations to pick from, you know, to put their names to the bills that we know are going to be really detrimental. So... I think the movement has become diluted and for as long as we're not seeing sustained pressure on the streets like we saw with the schools' strike for climate over the last couple of years, which was really significant, then, you know, I think the the, the game is being played squarely in the courts of big business, you know, and big fossil fuel companies.
0: Ben, thanks so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Mementa. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, in the wake of Christine Zawicka's reporting, which was featured on yesterday's episode of 7am, Senator Larissa Waters has questioned Department of Social Services official Greta Doherty about why a government-funded campaign to promote
2: awareness of sexual consent was axed. You said that they said to you that the campaign was not viable and then you also said that it wasn't fe- they contended it wasn't feasible. What was the reasoning that they came to that conclusion?
0: Senate Estimates was previously told by Doherty that an advisory mechanism suggested the campaign was not the most effective way to reach students.
2: I don't have
0: um, the detail of that, but I think I could summarise it as there not being full support for it to roll out. By whom? From UA members. When asked about Zwicka's story in the Saturday paper, Doherty conceded that the decision was taken by Universities Australia because the campaign didn't have the support of all members. And that she knew this all along.
2: Okay. Well, I look forward to um, us being able to get some better and not better answers, but some answers directly from them on that point. Thank you. Um, that's, that's most unsatisfactory.
0: I'm Angie McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back tomorrow.